Thank you all for attending the Overland Journal podcast live. I've got Amanda Zito as the magpie flies. Is that correct? That is. Awesome. So thank you so much for being on the podcast with me today. And a special thanks to Nimble Vehicles for supporting this week's podcast. Nimble Vehicles has been the leading manufacturer of extreme expedition vehicles since 2019. The Nimble Evolution is the ultimate vehicle for beginning overlanders and extreme adventurers alike. The proprietary lightweight aluminum flatbed combined with a luxurious habitat allows you to confidently go where others only dream of. Built on any one-ton chassis or larger with an off-roading package, 75 gallons of fresh water, over 1,000 watts of solar, and over 1,000 amp hours of lithium-ion batteries. You can expect to be off the grid for extended periods of time. To find out more information, visit nimblevehicles.com online, or you can email info at nimblevehicles.com for more information. Thanks again, Nimble. Uh, Your story is fascinating, and there's so much inspiration to be had from the things that you've accomplished. And one of the first things that come to mind for me is uh, you've been a lifelong creative. What caused that transition for you to go from being a creative living in Montana to now I'm going to hop on a motorcycle and start to go see the country. Well, the first thing is I moved from Montana, Portland in 2010 okay. to attend art school. Nice. So that's how I got my bachelor's degree in fine arts. And as all true broke college students understand, um, it costed a lot of money to go home and I was homesick a lot. I had horses in Montana. I've always been a horse girl. Like you can stereotype me. That's fine. But at the time I had this boat of a car and it cost almost $400 to go home and back. And wow. it was way too much. Um, especially for the amount that I wanted to go back and forth. So uh, motorcycles were the next best thing to horses. So I started on a 1980 Suzuki GS850 to go from Portland to Montana and back. And that's also how I got into motorcycle camping because I couldn't afford to stay at a hotel. That makes so much sense. So it was necessity was the mother of invention for you. Yes. And at what point did you realize that I'm not just solving a financial solution by riding a motorcycle and you're like, I really like this. Yes. What was the transition for you? Part of it was just like being on the road and moving um, was the only time that I really alleviated my homesickness. And that oh, was sure. a really big problem for me for a long time. But if I was moving, if I was traveling, I didn't miss home so much. Yeah, it is amazing how travel will do that. Because <laughs> it's you're in the moment. Yes. You're solving problems. You're navigating. You're experiencing new connections. And a lot of times for me, it's just being in nature yeah. that it really does settle a lot of those things in us. Mm-hmm. Is that what you found as well? Yes, absolutely. Like camping and being in the woods really calmed me down. I have really bad anxiety. The more I time I can spend in the trees, the better. Sure. Oh, it's, it's, well, I mean, I think in Japan, don't they, they, uh, they'll actually give a, a prescription of, they call it nature bathing and yes. you just, you go walk in the forest Yes. to help our soul settle a little bit, find that stillness that's so difficult in the modern day. Definitely. So what else kind of inspired you to go a little bit further? Cause now you realize I'm enjoying this. I'm going back and forth to Montana. I'm seeing my family. What made you think about going to the next step and starting to document your journeys? It's a combination of a lot of people. I think a lot of people are inspired by multiple, multiple people, right? So my grandmother traveled all over the country and Mm. she was my hero for most of my life. She's still my hero. Also Kinga of On Her Bike. I don't know if you know. Amazing. She's incredible. And when I first found her, it was before she had even left Australia. She had done the tour of Oz and had recorded that trip. And that was also part of the kick 
for me to start recording my own trips. I was like, well, she's just like, it's montage of her trip. I could do that. I could totally do that. And so that was a big kick for me was Kinga. And she was very inspiring. She is very inspiring. And, and one of the things that I really appreciate about the content that you produce is you've done a really nice job of, of maintaining that, that this is where I've come from. This is who I am. These are the positive things that are happening. These are the negative things that are happening. One of the concerns that I think all of us have in this industry is that we don't want to misrepresent the experience. But there are days that I'm exhausted. Yes. There are days that I feel frustrated. There are days that I'm lost. Yes. There are days that those things happen. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think you've done a really nice job of of helping people understand that absolutely this is amazing, but bad things happen or or challenging things happen. Challenging things happen. what What are some challenges that you encountered early on that you learned how to solve, that you found your your kind of rhythm to get around them? Um, well, in the early days, I was still traveling on my 1980 Suzuki and uh, 80s, a bike that's 40 years old that hasn't been treated very well, has a lot of mechanical issues. Sounds like me. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, uh, in 2016, I did a bit of loop of Montana. I did 6,000 miles and was on the road for two and a half months. Pretty much every other day that bike broke down and it was very overwhelming at first being in the middle of nowhere, Montana. I couldn't afford to pay a mechanic, so I had to figure it all out my own. Sure. I, of course, I had I carried my Bible with me, which was like the Chilton or the Climber manual for my bike, um, which is a mechanical uh, mechanic handbook. Um, so it laid out everything in vivid detail about how you're supposed to fix stuff. So my throttle cable got messed up in Northeast Montana. I had to fix that. My petcock broke in Eastern Montana. I spent a week in a tiny town in, in Eastern Montana. So did you lose parts. all your fuel? It all poured out? Or? Uh, it didn't all pour out. The, a little piece of metal got stuck in my petcock, so fuel couldn't even oh, go through the line. Got it, got it, got it. Yes, that was a whole thing. But mostly it taught me like when problems do arise, you just have to breathe. It's okay to freak out. Yeah. Like it's totally okay to have a little meltdown, let yourself cry, <laughs> grieve your original plans because that's also necessary. And then take a deep breath and then you tackle one thing at a time. What is the immediate problem? We have to take care of that first. The next stuff can come after that. And that's really important is staying as close to the moment as possible and worry about the future after the problem is dealt with. That's one of the things that I've noticed when people make the transition from being a tourist to a traveler <laughs> is when they accept the fact that things are not going to go according to plan. Mm-hmm. As tourists, when we travel, we're on a schedule. We've yes. got to get from here to here in this hotel and this is when we fly out. But it sounds like you made that transition at that time. Yes. Well, originally just the means to get to see family and then as a tourist and then as a traveler. Mm-hmm. What are some other things that you have learned uh, as a traveler that you now bring into your day to day? Dealing with my anxiety in a strange place. I do have anxiety attacks and they sneak up on you in the least convenient times. It's kind of the nature of anxiety and panic attacks. When I'm at home, it's very not easy. It's simpler to deal with a panic attack because I have my safe corner and I go to my safe corner and I breathe through it and calm myself down and just let it happen. It's much harder to do in a strange place. Like sure. when you're out on the road, having a panic attack at any point is extremely inconvenient and can sometimes be really dangerous. Right. And so learning box breaths, learning my own way to deal with my anxiety because everybody deals with it in a different way and some things work for some people and some things don't. Sometimes taking box breaths and forcing yourself to breathe can make it worse. It's just a matter of trying to go through the the different ways to handle your anxiety and figuring out what what works for you. So for me, it's pulling over immediately as soon as I start to feel it. Sure. As as long as there's a shoulder, right? What do you normally start to feel happening? This may be helpful for those listening that Mm -hmm. are experiencing something similar. What are you finding early on that happens? My heart rate increases. Okay. That's the first sign for me personally. And then I start to get like this uh, big tension in my chest Mm. and then it walls up this way and it kind of goes into my sinuses and I start to cry. And then my brain is like, why are we doing this? This 
realizes that, okay, this isn't safe. And that's like part of anxiety and panic attacks is that your body is like, this isn't safe. We can't have a panic attack. We'll be in danger. And does that, that amplifies it? Yes. Yes. It's like a cycle. It makes it so much worse. Well, so for someone that's traveling, that's experiencing anxiety in a similar way, you talked about, was it box breath? Box breath. Yes. So can you describe that? You're taking a moment and closing your eyes, making sure that you're grounded as much as possible. If you can take off your boots and touch like the ground with your feet, that helps me personally and closing your eyes and taking a moment and be like, everything will be okay. Not that it's okay right now. It's not okay right now, but it will be okay. Yeah. Depends on your lungs. Some people can like hold their breath for four, four beats. Some can do it for eight. For me, I count to one, two, three, four, inhaling, hold it for four, exhale for four and do that over and over again until it starts to relax you. And are there other things that you find when you're traveling that help with that, with help with the anxiety? Trying to make as much of your setup feel like home as possible. And that's part of the reason I like camping so much because my tent feels like my home. Everything has its place. Everything goes where it's supposed to be. It's like playing house when you're a kid, right? Sure. If you have a big cardboard box, you had your bed area, you had your little side table, those kinds of things. And so I do that in my tent. So I have my bed, I have a little side table, I have where my clothes go, where my bathroom is, which is just my toiletry kit that goes up in a little, my tent has uh, little pockets. Sure. Yeah. Um, so if I can create a safe space that I can make anywhere, it helps so much. Well, and that's, it's incredible that you have, you found these tools. I mean, that's really impressive and it's not stopped you seeing what you want to see. No. When I read through your bio, you, you took a big trip around the country and can you share what it, well, first of all, what inspired you to do that? And then what did, where did you go? The first one or the second one? The first one, the first big trip. <laughs> the first one, um, uh, where I went from Portland, Oregon to North Carolina and I came back, I did that on my 2016 CB 500 X. Honestly, my answer is kind of shallow, but I just had not spent much time on the Eastern half of States. I bought a scratch off map and I scratched off everywhere that I had been. And it was like the whole Western half of the United States, a couple of little States in the South, but I had not spent like any time on the Eastern half of the United States. And I was like, I should, if I'm like educating people about getting outdoors, I should have experience on the other half of our country. Right. Sure. And what did you think? It what was, was the, what was the takeaway? So much different than yeah. over here for sure. The East does have public lands, but they're smaller and they're more compact and mm. access is kind of harder than it is over here. It's more difficult to find places to camp. Yes, sure. definitely made me respect the challenges that a lot of my YouTube audience has because they're from the East Coast in trying to find places to access their outdoors. And what uh, tools did you find that helped you uh, find campsites? All of the apps. Okay. So many apps. What's your favorite app? Um, well, I'm biased because I'm sponsored by Onyx Off-Road. Okay. So um, Onyx is a favorite. But I was using it for quite a while before they sponsored me. Yeah. That was part of the reason they sponsored me because I was already very fluent in the app and I loved it. Yeah. There are, of course, other apps like Gaia and those kinds of things that... iOverlander is another iOverlander, yes. Um, but specifically to show you the property boundaries of public versus private land, Onyx and Gaia and I think the public lands app will show you the borders between public and private land. And that's also very important to know, especially on the western half of the United States, if you do any dispersed camping, to know what kind of land you're on so that you're following the rules appropriate to that organization. And that is one thing that's really useful about Onyx. Mm-hmm. Just knowing that you're on state land. Some yes. states require permits to be mm-hmm. on, on state land. Mm-hmm. Uh, knowing if you've ventured into private land accidentally, yeah, yes. that's really helpful. Definitely. For sure. What other things did you find about traveling in that area that are different from the Pacific Northwest? What, what gear did you need that was different? What solutions did you find that 
worked well. I thought that I was prepared coming from the Pacific Northwest and we have a lot of rain. That's true. But I obviously did not do a good enough job waterproofing my tent. I had a massive downpour in West Virginia and like my tent, like not totally flooded, but there was moisture in my tent because um, the area that I was in was a slight depression that I didn't see because there was hay all over the campsite. And I was like, why is there hay here? Right. It's because it floods. My tent was in a slight depression. The water went under and over my uh, footprint soaked through my bathtub. So you finished this trip out east mm-hmm. and now you are planning a bigger trip, which the next one I think was kind of around the country as it looked oh, like. I did that one. I did. That was in March. Okay. And, yes. and what, what did you learn from the first trip out east that you changed? Did you change your bike? What were the things that you changed about your travels or your equipment when you did the bigger trip? We're going to take a brief break and we will be right back. This week's episode is supported in part by iCamper. They make innovative hard shell and soft-sided roof tents that are designed to survive long-term overland use. Their revolutionary X-Cover won the Overland Journal Editor's Choice Award, eliminating the bulky PVC cover and also allowing for the fitment of crossbars for carrying bikes and kayaks. Their SkyCamp Mini is another award-winning design that provides a hard shell tent in the footprint of a much smaller clamshell model. This is the perfect solution for smaller vehicles or on vehicles where rack space is dedicated to other systems. iCamper believes that the best times are those spent traveling, discovering the world with those you love most. You can find out more about their quality tents at iCamper.com. There was a couple of upgrades I did. I got new brakes, but that was my bike needed that. I added a Pelican case to my bike so I could bring my laptop along with me. Obviously, this my whole job is to be a content creator, and I knew that I needed more than just a tablet to be able to do my job on this trip. So I added a Pelican case to the luggage rack of my bike, and I mount my camping duffel on top of that. The Pelican case protects my laptop to make sure that it's all nice and safe. It's lockable. I sure. add extra locks onto it. A big upgrade for me was I added called a moto jug to my bike um, for hydration. I normally carry a hydration backpack. I've done that for ages. Mm. On the first cross country trip, I started to get back pain. I was wearing it every single day, nonstop. And it's two and a half liters and water is like some that of the is, heaviest yeah, things that you could wear. So I added a moto jug, which is one gallon and it's a stainless steel container and it sits in like this fabric and it sits on the pasture pick of my bike. And then there's a hose that come up at the top. So all I have to do is pull it. Okay. There's no weight on your body. I stayed way more hydrated. It was awesome. Yeah, I used to, <laughs> I used to have a, like a camelback that yes. I would wear. And I was talking to a Dakar rider and he, and he said, well, first of all, put the weight on the mule, yes. which is the bike. Yeah. And then he said, the bigger problem is it closes off all the ventilation for your back. the back of your jacket. So it could really, you know, include all of the airflow through there yeah. and, and block that off. And I thought it's a really good advice. So I, I've not done that since then. That's a good observation. It's life changing, isn't it? It changes a lot. It changes a lot. So when you're camping remote, how do you normally eat? What What's your solution for that? I've become kind of obsessive about my camp kitchen. Um, I used to just really rely on like canned soups because I couldn't afford dehydrated meals all the time because they become kind of expensive. Sure. If that's what you're eating most of the time. Also, a lot of dehydrated meals tend to have a lot of sodium or uh, preservatives in them. There are wonderful companies now that have removed those kinds of things. Sure. Which is super awesome. Is there one that you like? Packet Gourmet. I think they're based out of Texas. Okay. They're mm, they're my favorite. Okay. That's good to know. <laughs> but they do tend, it's a little bit expensive. I think their meals start at about $14. Yeah. Um, of course, that's two servings. So you could definitely split them up if you wanted to. But I knew that that wasn't sustainable for me long term for all of the meals on the road. I started branching out. I learned how to make pasta in a pot, like one pot pastas that are super easy. And then I started making more complicated things. I learned how to make rice in my camp stove 
which is very tricky. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. Never done that. <laughs> and like making little stir fries. So now I have a skillet and a pot um, so that I could like start rice, let it hydrate on the side and then make a stir fry in my skillet. Most of the time my meals end up being vegetarian so that I don't have to worry about keeping meat at a safe temperature. I don't carry a cooler or anything else. So most of my meals are shelf stable or last a couple days because I'll stop at a grocery store and pick up fresh vegetables and cook them at camp. And most hearty vegetables will last like two to three days on the motorcycle if you pack them correctly. And what do you do to help them directly? Um, if it's a more uh, fragile vegetables like cherry tomatoes and that kind of stuff, if you get the cherry tomatoes in like the plastic pack, that way it doesn't get crushed. I have soft bags, so that's something I have to worry about. Broccoli, if you can wrap it in kind of like a damp paper towel, it will last a little bit longer, especially the hotter that it gets outside. If you could like wrap them in something moist, it sure. helps it stay a little bit longer. Carrots are very hardy. They'll last on the bike for like a week. Um, same thing with potatoes. And have you found that eating better has helped you stay out longer? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I've always had stomach problems, so I've always kind of paid attention to what I'm eating. So making sure that I'm consuming way more vegetables and greens and that kind of stuff has like one, make me felt so much better. And like I can ride longer during the day without starting to feel bogged down and that kind of stuff. I don't know if you've had a day where you ate just like way too much jerky and you can feel it. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm dehydrating from the inside out. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Probably done that more times than I should admit to. So, yeah. And like the other benefit of eating a lot of vegetables on the road is that you're also hydrating from the vegetables as well. We all as outdoor people, I'm sure have a struggle with staying hydrated. You just cannot get enough water into your body. Um, electrolytes, of course, are very, very important. And a lot of people know that. But like being able to also being hydrated from the food that you're consuming is yeah. awesome. And it's hard to carry enough water on a motorcycle. Yes. They're very payload sensitive. And, yeah. and then once you go off road, the heavier the bike is, the more challenging. Definitely. Uh, which leads me to a question. Uh, when you started riding, were you mostly on pavement and then started to introduce off-road riding? Did you have any experience off-road riding when you were younger? Um, what were some of the things that helped you? Because I see a lot of your photos now. You are getting further off-road, crossing streams. <laughs> it's awesome. It's awesome. What what kind of, what was the prog- progress for you mm-hmm. to feel more comfortable solo riding off-road? I started going off-road with that 1980 Suzuki just because I didn't know any better. It was like, I want to go to that place. And the fact that it was gravel didn't face me. Mm. Um, I, when I started riding, I didn't really know anybody else who rode. So I didn't get any of like that fear of like dirt or rocks or anything like that involved. My grandpa rode, but he only rode with me a couple times. And when I did ride with him, he's like, gravel is the same as pavement. Just right. go a little bit slower. You know, when I first started riding, it's just like, well, my campsite's that way. I'm just going to go there. Was a little bit cautious. Of course, I don't ride nearly as like quickly as I do now. I'm not going to say fast. I'm not a fast rider off road, but definitely just like taking it slow, taking it easy. If I felt uncomfortable, I stop and I breathe and you keep going. Yeah. Going from the Suzuki, I got the CB500X and a Honda Shadow uh, cruiser bike. And same thing. I did everything on the cruiser that I did on the CB because I didn't know any better. The bike that you travel on now, is it a CB500 you said? Yes. Yeah. I'm borrowing an Africa Twin from Honda right now. I'm extremely spoiled. I don't know how I'm going to give that bike back. That's a different kind of motorcycle. Yeah. <laughs> Does it have the DCT or is it a manual transmission? It's the DCT. Yeah. What do you think of that? It has grown on me. Yeah. At okay. first it's tough. Yes. <laughs> Why do I have an automatic transmission yes. on my motorcycle? At first you're just like, where is where is my clutch? Yeah. But when you have to do long hauls and you're going through towns and stuff, it's really nice. Yeah. <laughs> or even really technical off-road because mm-hmm. it kind of works like a roost clutch yes. and you can go really slow without stalling. Yes. Yeah. If you go up a hill, like I feel like a lot of that fear of like cutting out the engine halfway up the hill is totally gone now. Yeah. Yeah. And you think that that is the direction that you would want to go? Something about that size now that you've ridden it longer? I think that the... 
Avergo Twin is just like exactly what I need for what I do right now. It is definitely heavy, but I don't do a lot of super technical writing at the moment. Mm. I'm much more interested in like traveling, seeing a lot of new things than I am about like trying to do really technical, difficult obstacles, if yeah, that makes that, sense. No, it totally makes sense. So speaking of traveling and mm-hmm. seeing new things, what are some of your goals going forward? Where do you, where do you want to go next now that you've done these big <laughs> loops in the U.S.? What's next? A long-term goal is to go to Alaska, of course. I want to hit as many of the United States states as I can before trying to set my sights abroad. I do have the Northeast of the United States to hit next. Then Alaska is after that. And do you think you would ride through Canada or would you take the ferry or what would be your plan? I think it's more cost-effective to go through Canada. I did look at the ferry and if I go to Alaska, I really want my brother to go with me. And mm. for two bikes on the ferry, like don't quote me, I'm sure prices have changed. But when I looked at it, it was like $5,000 for two bikes. Um, be, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so going up through Canada would be much more cost-effective. And I kind of want to go up to the, the Arctic Circle, sure. see that, and then go back to Tuktuk. Yeah, nice. <laughs> yeah, Tuktuk is amazing. And now yeah. that there's the summer road, it's yeah. much easier to do that on a motorcycle. Yeah. You'd have to have studded tires to do it before that so, <laughs> on the ice roads. Yeah. And a special thanks to Terran Designs for supporting this week's podcast. When you're buying the best for your rig, you might as well do the same for your wardrobe. Terran is the best outdoor apparel on the market and the sharpest looking as well. From their flagship lightweight traveler pants with built-in bug repellency to their innovative fire-resistant campfire puffy, you can pack lighter, stay fresh longer, and push the boundaries on adventure. Build your kit today at terrandesigns.com. That's T-E-R-E-N designs.com. Because you no longer have to look like you live out of your vehicle when you actually live out of your vehicle. Thanks again, Taryn. When you think about or when you talk to people that are interested in having this, these same experiences as you, what is some common pieces of advice that you give to new riders or people that want to maybe venture further? What's what's some advice that you tend to give? To be patient with yourself, first off. Like just because you see other people online doing super difficult obstacles doesn't mean that you have to. If it's not fun for you, there's no reason for you to be doing it. Yeah. Also to invest in good gear. I especially people who are getting started camping, one of their fr- the first things that they turn to is big box stores because it's cheap and it's accessible. From my experience, I did do that and I regretted it almost immediately. Um, So investing in really good gear, even if that's like a budget backpacking tent, you will be so much happier in the long run. Oh, that's great advice. And one of the things that I found with motorcycling is you have to use lightweight gear. Yes. And you have to spend some money in order to get something that is lightweight and durable. Mm -hmm. So what have you found are some things that have worked really well for you? What's part of your kit that you're like, this is my go-to to stuff. Life-changing piece of gear for me was when I got my Big Agnes tent. It's a Copper Spur HB UL2 bike packing version. Big Agnes, and I'm sure other companies do this as well. They have a series of bike packing tents. Um, they're specific to like bicycle packing, not necessarily motorcycling, but it fits perfect for our uses. And part of that is because the pole sections are broken down into 12 inch instead of they're like shorter, 17 yeah. inches. And it's ultralight. So it packs down tiny, doesn't weigh very much. The Copper Spur is too, a 
two person tent and it's about the size that a normal one person tent would be like it, packed up. Has that held up well? Yes. I've had it for almost five years now. Oh geez. Yeah. That's yeah. A it's a good tent. Yes. <laughs> wow, that's a, and nothing is broken <laughs> and nothing is broken. I did have to patch one hole, but that was my fault. Not sure the tent. That happens. Yeah. <laughs> that's incredible. Yeah. Okay. So what other things are like that that have been so impressive like that for you? Uh, Cedar Summit X series for their kitchen equipment has been really, really awesome. I used to carry around a stainless steel Stanley pot and I dropped a, when I had a tiger, I dropped it pretty heavily on a rock and that Stanley pot just like caved in. It was a very trusty pot for a very long time. Um, and it's a great option for people who need something like that. The Cedar Summit X line has like this uh, X pot that collapses down nice and flat. And then they have the alpha pan that, and the pot kind of nestles into the pan. And then I have a kettle and a cup and it sounds like a lot of stuff, but it packs down like this much because mm. it all folds into each other. And I've dropped the bike multiple times. I think the alpha pan has like a small thing into it, but like nothing like the way that my Stanley pot like crunched in. Probably. Not saying that Stanley is bad, but yeah. that's what I did. Hey, you to drop it. a motorcycle on just about anything, <laughs> yeah. including your foot. It hurts. Yeah. Yes, definitely. After all of these journeys, what do you think you've learned most about yourself after all of that? I have grown so much, definitely. Yeah. And I first, first started writing. I would not talk to anybody when I left the house. I would made my map. And like, even when I went to the gas station, I wouldn't talk to anybody. Um, I would purposely go to gas stations where I could pay at the pump and keep going. Right. Yeah. Uh, when I did that big tour of Montana, one of my rules was that I wasn't allowed to uh, use GPS. I only had to use, was allowed to use paper maps because I knew it would force me to talk to people, mm. which was amazing. I met incredible humans on that trip. Oh, that's, that's some great insights. You talk about starting to interact with others as you began to travel more. What have you most learned about other people in your journeys? Everybody has a story yeah. and they want to tell you. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And sometimes they'll take half the day to do that. Yes. Yeah, I've also developed an excellent skill of telling very kind old men that are telling me about their triumph that I have to go. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> Can you share that with me? Because I would like to know. I want to know what that magic is. What is working for you to just to graciously step out of a conversation? You kind of like nod nod. And when they take a breath, you're like, I'm really, really sorry, but I do have to meet some friends down the road. I am. It was oh, lovely to talk road, to you. Like yes. It's a good one. I'll have to remember that. <laughs> Even if the friends are very far down the road, like yeah. a week later, yes. still truthful. So, <laughs> oh, that's good. That's great advice. One of the things that we really like to ask, uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a selfish question for me, is the books that you've read or the books that have been inspiring for you and you could share those with us. I mean, like the cliche answer, but it is true, is I love Jupiter's Travel. Um, uh, Ted Simon is incredible. Of course, Sam Manicum, incredible writer. Stories of a Motorcycle Gypsy by mm. Tiffany. I can't remember her last name right now. The rest of them are... Oh, Graham. Graham makes incredible books. I can't remember his last name Graham right Bell? now. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, they're great. Yeah, Sam's books. That Sam's The one... Books. I don't remember. It was the one in Africa. And it opens with that story of him getting in that accident. Yes. Unbelievable. Has that inspired you to write your own? I've been thinking about it. Okay, that's good. That's good. That's <laughs> I'm good. much better at visual storytelling than I am at the written word. So it'll probably be a bit off, uh, like as time-wise. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so now that you've got your, your Alaska plans <laughs> working out, we we're just talking, you're talking about Alaska. What are the things do you hope to accomplish in the next couple of years? Maybe not even a location, but there's some things that you want to learn as a writer or as a writer. I mean, 
I would really love to improve in motorcycling. I think everybody should always strive to improve in their craft, no matter how old you are or how long you have been riding. Um, so of course, like more uh, dirt bike skills and that kind of stuff is in my future, trying to get better at those kinds of things. You're thinking about taking a training class? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I took um, the She ADV class last year um, nice. for ADV woman and She ADV were working together at Get On ADV Fest in South Dakota. And I'm going back to that soon. So I'm super stoked for that. And working with Pat was amazing. I have like talked to other instructors in the past and we just never really clicked. So I didn't take the, their class and working with Pat was incredible. Awesome. Yeah. yeah I think that the training on a motorcycle is key because mm-hmm. it just gives, it builds on that confidence. Definitely. For sure. How do people find out more about you and your travels? We'll talk about all of your socials and all of the things. Well, the so. easy one is um, my website as the So if you go there, that it has all of the things on YouTube, I'm as the magpie flies. And that's one of my more active social medias. I post there almost every Friday. And um, there's a couple of times during the summertime where I get, I'm, I'm on a trip and I just can't make the next video. Almost every Friday I upload to YouTube um, as the magpie flies. And then on Instagram, I am at blind thistle. Can't see the weeds. <laughs> <laughs> that of course I had before the whole YouTube thing happened. So, so you gotta, you gotta tell me, cause I'm interested in the story. What brought you to calling it as the magpie flies? So. That one's pretty simple. That one, as the crow flies, of course, straight yep. line. We're traveling. That wasn't easy, but I don't really go straight to anywhere. Okay. And uh, we had magpies on our property growing up. Like a big flock came in every year. Um, I grew up on a ranch and uh, so I loved magpies. I thought they were the most beautiful birds. Mm. And if you've ever watched a magpie, they're kind of, I mean, like they like shiny things. So yeah. they come here and they'll obviously think that we're, they're going to go that way. And then they see something and they're like, I want to go over there. <laughs> and they're going to go over there all over the place. That's me. Sounds like a perfect way to travel. <laughs> yes. So we're, we're recording this at the Overland Expo. What are some things that you've seen at the show that you are really enjoying? Oh my gosh, there's so much stuff. All the classics have been incredible. Yeah. I've honestly spent more time listening to other people's classes than I have walking around. Yeah. No, the people here are so inspiring. And mm-hmm. I think I think the, the event does such a wonderful job of maintaining that balance. Yes. Between the equipment and the people that are yes. actually out and doing it. Yes. And I think that that's so important. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for being on on the podcast today and sharing your amazing stories and adventures Um, keep it up and and keep us up to date on how you're doing and where you're going and we'll share that with the audience as well thank you thank you so much for inviting me you're welcome thanks for being here thank you all for attending yeah